Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles to the book of John, the Gospel of John. And we're going to be looking at a passage in John chapter 14 this morning. Uh, That's on page 525 of the paperback Bibles that you can find underneath chairs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. Um, John 14, 1 through 6. So, yeah, it's it's Mission Sunday, and um, we've had uh, a wonderful time this weekend. Last night we had a missions dinner here, and we got to hear from a number of our missionaries throughout the world by Zoom. And uh, we got to hear from the Winnegars and Peter and, and the Schaffs also, and we heard from uh, Virginia in Shanghai this morning, and it's just been a really wonderful time, an encouraging time to hear about what the Lord is doing in the lives of, of these missionaries. And we've also heard about some of the challenges, difficulties that a lot of these missionaries are, are facing. And when you hear um, testimonies of, of missionaries, particularly when they talk about the difficulties that they deal with, you know, a question that might come to mind uh, to you is, um, why is it really? Why do they do this? I mean, why do missionaries go to these faraway places? I mean, what is it that's driving them to do this? Uh, it's not just, you know, a desire to see the world, I promise you. There's, there's, something, there's something more. I mean, when you think about what missionaries leave behind, their, their family and their friends, their, their home church and their, their job and their familiar surroundings in their neighborhood and city and the, the medical care that they have enjoyed over the years and their favorite restaurants and stores that they like to go to and in some cases their pets and their possessions. They have to leave all these things behind and they do it. And they, they go to these faraway places and, and they, they go with a message on their lips but they go to these places where there are people who are, um, you know, quite frankly, I, I guess outwardly speaking anyway, kind of happy in their own religions. You know, they're they're following Islam or Hinduism or maybe just a kind of hardcore secularism, and these people are in other nations, and, and they're doing the best they can. And frankly, they're not asking for missionaries to come. They haven't requested that. They seem happy. They're not hurting anyone. Why do the missionaries go? And why do churches like us send? The answer to that question highlights the importance of this conference and highlights the importance, the the essential importance of why foreign missions is so important. And so that's what we're going to talk about here today. Technically, we're still in the core values series that we're doing here at New Life, core values, uh, A, B, C, D, E, we've been looking at. We're in the core value of evangelism. So certainly foreign missions fits with the core value of evangelism. We've got one more sermon in the evangelism core value next Sunday. We're going to be talking about apologetics a little bit, just about the task of defending our faith. That's next Sunday. But so technically still in evangelism now, but, but it is uh, Mission Sunday. What we're going to do is look at several texts, but we're going to begin with this passage here in John chapter 14, and uh, this passage will help set up the case that I'm going to make for you today about why it's so important for, for missionaries to go, um, why every Christian ought to have a heart for missions, 
and how we should all discern how the Lord might be leading each of us to contribute and to help. So if you're able to stand, please do that. John 14, 1 through 6. John 14, 1 through 6. These are the words of Jesus. And he says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Holy Spirit, would you please give us eyes to see, open our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Why do missionaries go? Why are the Winnegars going? Why are the Shoffs going? Why is Peter going? Three reasons that I want to share with you today. The reason that missionaries go, first of all, is because of the exclusive nature of the gospel. Okay, so let me explain what I mean by this. Um, We're going to look at four texts here, so if you're able to to flip to other passages, do that. I'll have the other passages on the screen here, but we'll begin with this passage in John 14. Missionaries go because of the exclusive nature of the gospel. So here's the context of John 14. We've got uh, Jesus speaking, and he's talking to his disciples, and he's telling them that he's going to go and prepare a, a place for them, and uh, he refers to it with a metaphor of a, of a house, uh, this Father's house. Jesus is going to go and uh, get this place ready, and, and He's going to come back, He says, and, and He's going to take those disciples, those who believe in Him, to this place that He is prepare, preparing. And uh, Thomas, then, here in, in verse 5, not quite sure what Jesus is, is referring to, and, and He says, uh, you know, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? How can we get to this place that, that you're talking about, this, this Father's house that you're preparing for us? How can we get there? And Jesus' answer is very simple and very clear, and it's one of the most famous passages here in the Scriptures. Jesus' response is, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, what's going on here is that Jesus is talking about a place in heaven. After we pass out of this life, we believe that there's a, a place in, in heaven, a, a, a happy place, a blissful place, a trouble-free, sorrow-free place. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to prepare that place for you. And when Thomas says, how do we get there, what Jesus says is that here's the way. And notice what Jesus doesn't say. He, he doesn't say, here, I'm going to show you the way, or I'm going to show you the truth. Um, it's not like Jesus is going to point to some direction or some rules to follow. I'm not going to show you how to do this. What he says is, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. If you want to go to heaven, 
the way to do it is through Jesus. Now, now you might say, okay, well, that's good for Christians. They choose to go to heaven through Jesus, but of course, other religions, they can choose, you know, their way to uh, get to, to heaven. But just to make sure you don't misunderstand, Jesus adds at the end of verse 6 the, the negative form of the statement. He stated it positively, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, the negative statement is, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one. And so, from this passage, we have to conclude um, this simple statement, that heaven is reached by Jesus alone alone. There's one way to get to heaven. Well, there's another passage, Acts 4.12. Let's see what this says. What you're going to notice here is that there's different New Testament writers that are all stating basically the same thing. And so now we're going to see what Peter has to say. Acts chapter 4, if you want to flip there, you can. Acts 4.12. Um, <clears throat> Uh, Luke actually wrote Acts. Luke is recording for us what Peter said. Peter is preaching. So here's the context of this passage. Peter and John, they, they healed uh, somebody in chapter 3, and that caused quite a stir. They ended up getting arrested. And Peter and John stood before the Jewish authorities, and the Jewish authorities said, by what power did you do this thing? And Peter responds, and he talks about Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, he said, God raised him from the dead, and it's by the power of him that I was able to heal that, that person. And then in Acts 4.12, Peter adds this, and he says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. They might say, saved from what? What is salvation? Salvation is being delivered. It's, it's, it's being saved from something. Saved from what? It's being saved from the, the penalty of our sin. It's being saved from the, the condemnation and anger of God upon us for the ways that we have rebelled against Him and sinned against Him and lived as if He doesn't exist. And all humankind comes under God's wrath because of that, but there is a way to be saved from that, to, to, to enjoy salvation, and it is only through the name of Jesus, and there is no other name under heaven by which that can occur. You, you can't be saved through Zeus. You can't be saved through Artemis. You can't be saved through Brahma. You can't be saved through Muhammad. There's only one name that can accomplish that for us. And so we conclude this, salvation is received by Jesus alone. That's what Peter says. So let's look at another text, 1 Timothy 2. Now this is Paul. This is Paul writing. Context here, 1 Timothy 2, 5. Paul is encouraging Christians to offer up their prayers for all kinds of people, for kings and those in authority. And basically, Paul is trying to say, you know, you might not want to pray for those in authority because they're, they're persecuting you right now. But what Paul is saying is that Christians ought to have a heart to pray for all kinds of people, whether they're friends or enemies. So he says, pray for all kinds of people. And he actually makes a statement there that actually God has this heart for all people to be saved. He, you know, these kings and emperors who are persecuting you, God has a heart for them. He has a heart for all kinds of people. 
But in order for salvation to happen, there has to be a mediator. What is a mediator? A mediator is one who intervenes between parties, particularly parties who are in conflict. A mediator intervenes to settle a dispute. That's what a mediator does. And so as we hear about the war in Ukraine, you know, you've probably heard some stories of world leaders who are stepping up and they're talking to Putin and they're talking to Zelensky in Ukraine and, and they're trying to work out a settlement, an agreement among these two parties that are in dispute. Those are mediators, and it hasn't been working for them, but that's what they're trying to do. And so, what Paul says here is, thankfully, there is a mediator between us and God. There is one God, he says, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ, Christ Jesus. There's, one, there's not a panoply of options when it comes to mediators between you and God. There, there's, there's one. And Christ Jesus is uniquely qualified to be the mediator because it says here in this text that He is man so He can represent us, but we look at other texts and we know that He is also God in the flesh. So in this mediator, we have the God-man, the perfectly qualified one to bridge the gap and mediate between us and God. And so we conclude from this text, the only mediator is Jesus alone. There's one. One more text, 1 John 5, 12. Now we're hearing from a different person. This is John. We've heard from Jesus, Peter, Paul, John. John who wrote the Gospel of John, but also the Epistles of John. So this is 1 John, not the Gospel of John that we just read from. 1 John, near the end of your Bibles, close to Revelation 5, 12. Uh, John here in this passage, he's talking about um, the testimony of God and how God's testimony is greater than men's testimony, and he talks about how God testifies, he, he speaks, He declares things about His Son, and we know His Son is, is Jesus, and John records for us this very simple testimony, and he says this is what God's testimony is about His Son, Jesus. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Life is what we all want, right? We're all longing for that. No matter what you believe, you want to live. And yet we know that slowly through the course of our lives, we're actually dying. And we're getting closer to our death every single day. And there is hope, though, that life can be had, that death does not have to be the end, that the grave does not have to have the final word, that we can know what's going to happen after we die and that we can live. And it's because there's a Savior named Jesus who conquered death in His death on the cross and has risen from the dead on the very first Easter morning. No one else has done that. No one else has raised from the dead. Only Jesus Christ. And so John says, if you have the Son, you have life. You have that promise of life after death. But if you don't have the Son, you don't have life. And so we conclude from this. Eternal life is found in Jesus alone. So let's just put all this together. Jesus, Peter, Paul, John. We could even add Luke to that list since Luke wrote Acts recording Peter. Jesus, Luke, Peter, Paul, John, 
all say things like this. Heaven is reached by Jesus alone. Salvation is received by Jesus alone. The only mediator is Jesus alone. Eternal life is found in Jesus alone. This is not mysterious, friends. This is not ambiguous. This is not hard to understand. This is repeated over and over again by different writers in as many possible ways as we can conceive of it. In terms of going to heaven after we die, in terms of being saved from our sin, in terms of how we can connect to, the, to, to our Father, in terms of how we can know we live, all different ways of talking about salvation found in Jesus alone. That's why I'm saying, that's why I'm talking about the exclusive nature of, of the gospel. Missionaries go because of the exclusive nature of the gospel. Now, exclusive, I know, is a word that can kind of rub us the wrong way because we might think of exclusive in the terms of like a country club. You know, a country club is just an ex- a place for these certain people of an income level or a, a social class. You know, it's exclusive, it's elitist. Um, but that's not what I mean by exclusive here. What I mean by exclusive is, is particular, that there's, there's one as opposed to many other ways. A guy named Phil Riken, I think, sums this up uh, really well. And so, it, here's what he says. On the one hand, Christianity is the most exclusive religion imaginable. It insists that belief in Jesus Christ is absolutely necessary for salvation. On the other hand, Christianity is the most inclusive religion possible, because it makes salvation accessible to everyone. There are no racial, social, intellectual, or economic criteria that prevent anyone from joining God's family. You don't have to reach a certain moral level of performance. You don't have to join a particular church. You don't have to speak a particular language. You don't have to be a particular race. You don't have to have a particular education level. All you need to do is repent and believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And that message is proclaimed to all who would receive it. So, why do missionaries go? Because they know that what I said earlier, remember what I said earlier about, you know, people in other countries are doing the best they can, they're not hurting anyone, and so many people think, well, they must be okay. And the Bible doesn't allow us to conclude that. Apart from Jesus, they're not okay. That's why missions is important. So, Let's look to this next point, which kind of piggybacks on what I just said here. Here's another reason why missionaries go, because of the error of pluralism. So, what is pluralism? Okay, what what is pluralism? Well, it's a very important word when we think about foreign missions. Um, And and it can be a complicated word because it can be defined in different ways. And so, one way to define pluralism is just to say that that, that it just means diverse. And so sometimes people say we live in a pluralistic world, and when they say that, all they mean is that we live in a world where people believe a lot of different things. And of course, that's absolutely true. <laughs> that's just the reality. We do live in a pluralistic world, a pluralistic culture, a pluralistic nation, a pluralistic state and city. That's true. But when, when we think of pluralism more theologically, it can be defined like this, that all religions are equally effective ways of responding to the same divine reality. That all religions are just doing their best to get to God, and they're all equally valid, or as one speaker says, at least the ones we like. 
you know, the religions we respect, they're probably getting to God. We all know just some, you know, totally objectionable religions that have practices that are repugnant to us, and so it's hard for us to be full and complete pluralists when we get to them. But um, all religions that we like uh, are equally effective ways of responding to the same divine reality. That, that's the view held by many, many people in our culture, and I think it's a view held by many people even in the church. And so, Second <clears throat> Corinthians 10.5 tells us this. This will be our text actually for next Sunday as we talk about apologetics. Paul says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so, we have to apply this to this kind of pluralistic argument. Let, let's, let's think through this in light of what we just heard from the Scriptures, all of these various affirmations of the exclusivity of the gospel. Let's examine pluralism. And I think what we'll find is that it is, it is an error. It doesn't hold up. If we just kind of take Paul's uh, advice here, let, let's, let's see if we can destroy this argument, because I don't think it's that hard to do, actually. Um, so here, here are the errors of pluralism. One, one is this. It is contradictory. So here, here's what I mean. The essence of pluralism is this, that no single religion is true, there are really no absolute truths out there. No religion is superior to, to any other, at least of the religions we like. We need to avoid being dogmatic. When people get dogmatic, that's when they start getting mean and sometimes violent, and that's true. So pluralism is let, let's not be dogmatic. Let's not say that any religion is better than any other this is the essence of pluralism. But, but notice what pluralism is doing is that in its assertion, it is claiming to be true. It wants to say all these other religions are, are not true, but it is true. If it didn't believe that it was true, it wouldn't state its position the way it does. It says there are no religions superior to any others, but it holds itself up as a truth that is over all the other religions. All the other religions are false, but it is true. In other words, if pluralism is true, you have to apply it to pluralism. And so if there are no absolute truths, no truth is superior to any other, that would apply to pluralism also, wouldn't it? Which would mean that pluralism is false. <laughs> it's just, it's not coherent. It's self-defeating. And so Phil Riken again says this, in the end, philosophical pluralism's dismissal of dogma turns out to be just another dogma, just another truth claim, another absolute truth claim that it says doesn't actually exist. So, and, you know, we got to think through this, it doesn't seem to hold up, pluralism contradictory. Um, pluralism is condescending. Uh, let me explain what I, I mean by that. There are uh, kind of different illustrations that, that are used to um, teach pluralism, and so one of them is this illustration of the elephant and the blind men. So maybe you've, you've heard of this, and so the illustration goes like this. There's a number of blind men. They come up to an elephant, and they want to find out what the elephant is. They're blind, and so one walks up and puts his hands on the side of the elephant, and he says, it's a wall. And the other comes and grabs the elephant's tail and says, it's a snake. 
and another walks up and puts his arms around the elephant's leg and says, it's a tree. And so the illustration is, here's all these blind men, they're trying to find out what the elephant is, and they're all wrong. They're partly right, they get a piece of it, but, but in their very essence, they're, they're wrong. And so the reason why I'm saying this is condescending is, is that from a pluralistic point of view that kind of uses this illustration, of course, the, uh, the implication is that the view of pluralism can see just fine. And the view of pluralism can see that this one's wrong and this one's wrong and this one's wrong. The view of pluralism sees that it's an an elephant, but all of these religions that are trying so hard to figure it out, they're all blind and they're all wrong. Pluralism is right. Religions are wrong. It's condescending. It's kind of conceited, actually. Joel Beakey says this, pluralism does not harmonize the various religions, but insults and denies them. It claims to affirm all religions, but in fact declares them all to be wrong. So that's a concern as we think about pluralism, and we might consider one further error. It is confused, at least with regard to its understanding of Christianity, pluralism is, is confused because let's, let's return to this illustration of, of the elephant. Here's the elephant, and you've got all of these kind of blind men, and they're groping about. They're trying to find out what this is. They, they're receiving no help. They're absolutely in the dark. They're, they're ignorant. They're on their own. And the pluralistic argument just assumes that that's where the story ends, that they, they receive no help. They receive no aid. They receive no assistance. They're just blind men groping in the dark. And that's the way it used religions. But what if somebody speaks and says, this is an elephant? What if someone declares the truth about what it is these blind men are seeking to find? See, that's at the essence of Christianity, that we have a God who speaks, a God who reveals truth, a God who doesn't leave us in the dark groping about ignorantly. God reveals the truth. He makes sense of reality for us. It's at the very essence of our Christian faith. A speaking God, a talking God. We're grateful for that. He helps us make sense. Paul says this in Colossians 1, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. It was a mystery, but it's not anymore. Because God has spoken and revealed to us the truth about how to get to heaven, about how to have a mediator, about how to live. And it's through Jesus and Jesus alone. So I think we can critique pluralism from a a number of of different ways. I just want to clarify a few things that even as we think about other religions, we, we want to acknowledge that we can still agree with other religions where there is agreement between Christianity and that particular worldview. We should look for those things we agree upon and, and affirm them. It's good. That's fine. I mean, ter- particularly when it comes to social issues, we find that we have a lot in common with many of the other religions. We agree on many things, not everything. We can admire those who follow other religions because very often their devotion to their religion belittles the devotion that we give to our religion. Quite frankly, we have to acknowledge that. Sometimes we'll find uh, people 
praying with so much more fervency than the typical Christian does? I mean, we can stand back, we can admire that. We're not saying that the those who practice other religions are just bent on evil all the time. Many times they do very good things. We don't have to say as Christians, well, I disagree with your religion, therefore I'm not going to acknowledge what you do well. We don't have to conclude that kind of thing. We can, we can admire them where appropriate, and we can also affirm the importance of religious freedom. Whatever religion somebody holds to, he or she should be able to practice that religion freely, without discrimination. If a Hindu or a Muslim is persecuted for his or her religion, the Christian should be the first one to come to his or her defense. We're not looking for other religions to be outlawed. We don't think that people believe when they're coerced or manipulated. True belief does not come through legislation. It comes through the power of the Holy Spirit when the gospel goes forth. All we can do is proclaim the gospel and call upon God to do a work in people's hearts, but we don't look to the state to do that. So we want there to be freedom for all who practice religion however they desire, just assuming it doesn't get dangerous and threatening other people's safety. Um, So why do missionaries go? Because pluralism can't be true. I mean, the first point of this sermon, I think, by the Scriptures tells us that it's not true. Even when we think about it logically, rationally, it's not true. We can't hold on to that idea. Here's what... uh, Um, Robert Peterson says, the best way to help the unevangelized is not to become more optimistic about their eternal destiny apart from the gospel. It's not to come up with a bunch of inventive, creative theories about how it might be okay if they don't believe in Jesus. We get creative and we try to work out a way that it's not that big of a deal. It's okay. They'll be all right. But Peterson is saying, no, that's not really the way to do it. Rather, it's to allow our understanding of God and His Word to generate a greater burden for the unevangelized and to pray, give, and go to make sure they hear the gospel. That's the way to respond to these truths. So let's look to the third thing here. Um, Why do missionaries go? Because of the exclusiveness of the gospel, because of the error of pluralism, but also because of the mission of the church. This is what we're called to do, friends. It's one of our major tasks. As our call to worship said, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would fill us and we would be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the earth. Matthew 28, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Romans 10 declares that um, how can they believe if they have not heard? How can they hear if no one preaches? And how can they preach if nobody sends them? It's churches like this that send. So some of us go, and we've been hearing from them this weekend, and those who don't go, send. And I think as John Piper says, there is a third option, disobedience. (laughs) It's one of those three. We send or we go or we're disobedient. And so as a local congregation, this is why we do this missions conference. We want to think about how we can do what we can to fulfill this mission. So what can we do? I'm just going to take uh, from uh, Robert Peterson's quote here. Um, It says, um, to pray, give, and go. Pray, give, and go. So you can pray. That's something you can do. You can pray for evangelism broadly. I mean, you can make that a regular part of your personal prayers, that the gospel would reach all unreached nations, that more missionaries would be raised up in the world and even from this church. You can pray for our missionaries specifically, particularly. 
Um, you can pray for all of them, or you can choose maybe a couple that you happen to know, or you happen to have a greater passion for what they're doing, and pray for them. You can get signed up for their prayer email updates, and we can help you with that so that you can receive something regularly, and you can make that part of your personal prayers. So pray. Pray that this church becomes impassioned for missions. Make that a regular part of your prayers. You can also give. It does take money to send missionaries. just does. And the more money that you give through your tithes and offerings, the more money we have to support our missionaries. We support all of our missionaries at a certain level. We would love to support them more. We'd love to be more generous. We'd love to support more missionaries but there's a limited number of finances available. So you can give. You can give to missionaries directly, too. You can talk to the Winnegars. You can talk to Peter. You can talk to the Schaffs. Um, you can go to them and say, how can we support you? And they will figure out a way for you to support them directly. It doesn't have to go through this church, but it can. So be generous in your giving to support missionaries. The last thing is go. Pray, give, and go. You can consider whether you would be called to go. Maybe God is calling you. Maybe it's not just somebody else. Maybe it's you. Uh, one way to begin this is to go on a short-term mission trip, uh, again, like the one to Croatia th this summer. Because of COVID, we've had to limit our short-term trips here at New Life, but we do try to offer these on a regular basis. So um, stay tuned. We'll, we'll see what the Lord does. Um, so short-term trips is a good way to start if you've never been on the mission field. But who knows, maybe the Lord is actually calling you, yeah, to quit your job and be a missionary. Now, if the Lord isn't calling you to do that, don't feel guilty about that. God doesn't call everybody to do that. <laughs> maybe God's not calling you. That's okay. We still love you. God still loves you, more importantly. <laughs> but, I mean, have you ever thought about it? I mean, have you ever asked the Lord, Lord, are you calling me to the mission field? I mean, that's a legitimate thing to ask. And, and see, what, see what he does. Pray, give, go. So in our denomination, um, our denomination is called a Presbyterian Church in America, and the mission-sending agency of our denomination is called MTW, Mission to the World. And um, we work with MTW closely. Some of our missionaries are uh, MTW missionaries. And um, they have something they're calling the 1% the challenge. And what, the, what MTW is doing is challenging all churches in the PCA to send 1% of their members onto the mission field. And so there's you know, roughly 300,000 members of the PCA, so that would be about 3,000 missionaries. Um, I think we've come actually close to fulfilling that with the Schumachers, a, a family of, how many is in the Schumachers family, five or six or something like that? So... Um, we, just with them alone, maybe we've exceeded the 1%, but it's okay to exceed the 1% challenge. Um, <laughs> um, but I just want you to let you know what our denomination is doing. I mean, it's an exciting thing to think about what would happen if every church in the PCA sent even just 1% of their membership. Of course, many PCA churches are much larger than this one, and it would be a much, much larger number sent. And by the way, the 1% uh, challenge is not just sending people through MTW. They just say, just send them through any agency that wants to support your effort to preach the gospel, and it's okay with us. Uh, we just want to see people go. So pray for MTW as, as well. They, they do good work, and as a PCA church, you should know what they're doing. 
Uh, Father, thank you so much for uh, entrusting to us this task of being missionaries to the world. Lord, please make us a, a church passionate about this, make us generous, and um, Lord, show us how we would go forward in a way that would please and honor you as we seek to obey the Great Commission. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.